when he chose. The only trouble was the getaway. He had no stalls to whom to pass the booty. He would have to lift the pocketbook as they got out at Euston if he did it at all. It was too risky to chance it before. Five minutes before the train drew in at Euston, Sweeney began to collect his hand baggage. He patted his breast pocket to make sure that the pocketbook was still there. Jimmy felt pleased that he had restrained himself. He brushed by Sweeney as the train drew up, and as he passed on to the platform, he knew the exultation of the artist in a finished piece of work. The pocketbook was in his possession. Not until he had reached his hotel and was safe in the seclusion of his own room did he examine the prize, having first ordered a fire in view of eventualities. There was a bunch of greenbacks and English notes totalling up to forty pounds. Not a bad haul. Also, there were a score or so of letters. Jimmy dropped the pocketbook itself on the fire and raked the coals round it. Then he settled himself to read the correspondence before consigning it to the flames. Waste not, want not. And although Jimmy held rigidly to the line of business in which he was so adept, he was not averse to profiting from the by-products. One never knew what information might be in a letter. Jimmy had more than once gained a hint, which, passed on to the right quarters, had earned him a rake-off from a robbery that was decidedly acceptable. There seemed, however, nothing of that kind here. The letters were merely ordinary business jargon on commonplaces of commerce, and half a dozen or so introductions which a businessman visiting Europe might be expected to carry. One by one, the flames consumed them. Then he came to the last one, and hitched his shoulders as he read. It had been printed by pencil, evidently at some trouble. Dear Sweeney, we are not going to be played with any longer. If you are in earnest, you will come over and see us. The Fortunia sails on the 17th. The evening following her arrival, one of us will wait for you between 10 and 12 at the Albert Suspension Bridge, Battersea. You will make up your mind to come if you are wise. We can then settle matters. O.J. A man may be a pickpocket and retain a certain amount of human nature. A crook who is in business for profit rarely has opportunities to consider romance. If there is anything in the nature of a show, he usually plays the part of the foiled villain. So, if he has a taste, that way he indulges in fiction, the theatre or the cinema, so that he can safely gratify his natural sympathies on the side of virtue. Jimmy was fond of the cinema. Often he had been so engrossed by the hair-raising exploits of a detective that he had totally neglected the natural facilities afforded by darkness and entertainment. Now, however, he was suddenly plunged into an affair that promised real-life melodrama. The printed characters, the mysterious appointment late at night, the ambiguous threat, were something for his imagination to gloat over. His fertile brain wove fancies of the Black Hand, the Mafia, and kindred blackmailing societies, which the Sunday editions of the New York papers had painted crimson in his mind.
He thrust the letter into the fire and went out in search of one four-fingered Foster, sometime an associate of his in New York, now established in a snug little business, Bunko Steering, in London. Foster had been notified in advance of his coming. He found his four-fingered friend established under the role of an insurance agent at a Brixton boarding house, and Foster was willing and anxious to show the friend of his youth the town. So thoroughly, indeed, did they celebrate the reunion that ten o'clock had gone before Jimmy recalled the note. He swallowed the remnants of some poisonous decoction while they lounged before the tall counter of an American bar near Leicester Square. "'Say, Ted,' he remarked, his pronunciation extremely painstaking. "'Where's Albert Bridge?' "'Search me,' answered his friend.